Alrighty, hello everybody. Welcome to the second edition of this call-in broadcast. And last time, the discussion seemed to go fairly well. And I think the format is actually very interesting, as I sort of discussed in the previous episode, and I guess one of my philosophies in doing any kind of public-facing speaking or opining is to, for the most part, do it when I have some original information to share or I feel like I've happened upon some sort of unique insight uh, so that I'm not just basically being a pundit and I'm not just, you know, BSing and thinking that somehow every fleeting thought that might enter my mind is worth publicizing. You know, that actually is one of the reservations I have about the culture of like talk radio and just constant YouTube punditry. Sometimes I guess it could be worthwhile, but if you're of the belief that virtually anything that you might think (laughs) is worth pumping out into the world, uh, there could be maybe a humility problem with you that calls into question whether your entire uh, philosophy is worth really ingesting in the way that you think it ought to be. Um, So uh, to the best extent possible, what I want to do on uh, call-in and also on the other formats that I am a participant in is to try to present some new information, maybe, you know, or also known as reporting uh, and kind of couple that with maybe some analysis and then obviously also, open it up for a wider discussion. And uh, I just want to make sure that the uh, room settings are properly calibrated. And I believe they are. So uh, with that, we shall press on. Um, So what's the new information that I'm hoping I can potentially bring to the world today? Uh, it's that I, over the past couple of weeks, have been getting correspondence from people who work in the film and TV industry, believe it or not. And uh, since I've kind of been reporting over the past few months on the excesses of what I call COVID bureaucracies, it started with focus on college campuses and not because I'm somebody who pays hyper scrupulous attention to what is going on at college campuses and not because the vast majority of the population is going to be directly affected by what goes on at college campuses, but because the bureaucracies that had been sort of erected at these places were I think reflective of the bureaucratization of COVID more generally uh, in terms of how other institutions across society are reacting. And as I more and more was reporting on some of the really 
I think it's hard to argue purely ridiculous and stringent protocols that college students have been subject to where, for example, at the beginning of this past uh, fall semester, you had these even quasi lockdown situations at certain colleges where they were essentially con- confined to their dorm rooms and such. Um, but over the course of doing that reporting, you know, if you're interested, you can go look at my kind of Substack archive uh, to, to read that. As expected or as hoped, I heard from people in other industries who were relaying similar tales of these kind of mind-bending and excessive COVID rules that they were subject to and that everybody or seemingly everybody believed were a joke, but because of their professional or social or even political obligations, were unable to express their opinion uh, publicly. And, you know, that's to me where journalism comes in, right? Um, Journalism I would hope can be of use when a trend is clearly observable in the populace, but because of various constraints, whether they be financial or just social or political, um, though the sensibilities there cannot find any kind of public expression. And then, you know, journalism, because the whole incentive structure is different is supposed to, quote, give voice to those beliefs. And uh, I see somebody has already entered the call and stage, uh, caller stage, so I'll, I'll get to you shortly. I just want to give a little bit of an intro. Um, and, you know, more and more, once when you're gathering these correspondences or people are proactively contacting you to share their experiences, um, a trend develops, right, or a pattern materializes. And that happened with people in the TV and film industry uh, contacting me because maybe uh, even more so than college campuses, actually in some cases, certainly more so than college campuses, the protocols that they are subject to, you know, on film sets or on shoots, uh, et cetera, they are just beyond belief in terms of their stringency. And that, I think, is worth remarking on because once the bureaucracies which are imposing such rules become kind of permanent or quasi-permanent fixtures of ordinary life, at least in a particular sector, that's sort of a harbinger of how other elements of society are making permanent these kind of measures that had initially been at least presented as probably being uh, temporary or as a reaction to an emergency situation. And when an emergency is invoked and fairly radical new rules are imposed in response, and then those become permanent, you know, that's not a pattern of events, or that's not a structure which I think is most conducive to civil liberties or even freedom of thought. And the freedom of thought angle is best evidenced by the fact that over and over, I get these private messages from people who say, look, I can't obviously talk about this publicly because I could face repercussions or because I could be socially or professionally sanctioned. Um, so if, if when enough people tell you that, you know, you detect that something is possibly amiss. 
Um, so more and more, I was getting these correspondences from people in the film and TV industry where they're saying, look, I mean, we're being tested nonstop and the rules that we're told we must abide by are inhibiting our ability to really do our job or even just engage in basic social activity. And it's wildly excessive and lots of people think it's just nonsensical, but they can't really come out and say so. And then a funny thing happened, right? I was watching uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay, so I'm sure many of you have seen the show. Very good, long-running show on, on HBO. And just kind of aimlessly watching the credits roll past after one episode, uh, I noticed that there was a whole credit screen now on Curb Your Enthusiasm dedicated to listing all the COVID staff, the newly invented COVID staff who are now working on this HBO production. And as I sometimes do, I uh, tweeted about this and it was one of the weirdest eruptions of outrage that I've ever personally experienced on Twitter. And as you can imagine, I've experienced quite a few at this point. And there were people who were just outraged, furious, uh, that I was seeming to dismiss the importance or necessity of these COVID jobs. And I really wasn't even doing that, although I, I do think that their necessity is at the very least questionable. But what, what I was doing in making the observation about this credit screen was simply to note that it was representative of these burgeoning COVID bureaucracies, which have now taken hold across so many societal institutions and show no sign of going away anytime soon. And that I think is worth thinking about because they were implemented on the basis of a supposed time-constrained emergency, and now they're becoming perpetual, seemingly. And so I got the word you know, blog posts written about me, screenshotting this dopey little you know, credit, uh, credit reel. Um, funnily enough, <laughs> Larry David ended up trending on Twitter, I think in part because I tweeted this, which I think would itself be a pretty amusing premise for a Cure Enthusiasm episode uh, where I have to go and elaborately apologize to him and then maybe he ends up having to apologize to me uh, through some convoluted series of events. Um, but anyway, I mean, the, the, the tweet seemed to go wildly viral beyond what I had ever even thought would have been uh, possible given it was seemed to be such a benign or even unexciting observation. And then uh, what happened was, you know, as often happens with little online flare-ups like this, a different message ends up coming into your radar uh, because the private correspondences pick up. So I ended up hearing from more and more people in the film and TV industry who, of course, wouldn't say so publicly, but were telling me of how these COVID personnel, the 14, as kind of exemplified by the 14 people on the Kirby Enthusiasm credits, not to single them out, but, you know, that's what I happened to see. Um, these people were telling me of their own experiences on different TV and film productions in the past couple months and how incredibly arbitrary all these protocols really were. And now everybody seemed to recognize how arbitrary the protocols were, right? But they were going along with it because they had to for reasons of professional obligation or 
because if they were to object, they could maybe offend the sensibilities of people in their milieu who are very hyper COVID sensitive. Um, and so I got talking to people who you know work on different productions for you know uh, Netflix and uh, Apple TV and also an- another HBO show, and uh, the stories they recount are just miserable in terms of what COVID does and in terms of not COVID itself, but the protocols associated with COVID that have been imposed with such stringency on these productions, right? Um, so they would say stuff like it really hindered our sense of community, which is actually important if you're working on a TV show and you have to collaborate and you have to be on good terms socially with your colleagues. Um, they would say stuff like how, you know, the constant monitoring of proper mask usage was extremely awkward and not even that the masks themselves were awkward, although I guess in some instances they were, but just because you were always potentially worrying about violating some kind of disciplinary protocol. And that is not the greatest dynamic, especially in a creative environment like a TV show where you're trying to you know, produce the best possible product. And I just want to also note that I'm not arguing, and I've never really argued, even with respect to the college student issue, that these are the most kind of beleaguered or oppressed victims on the face of the earth, right? The point is not to say that you listening to this or anyone really should spend a lot of time sympathizing with the plight of elite college students or film and TV crew. Um, I think at some point, uh, maybe some kind of personal sympathy is warranted in certain situations, but that's not really my aim in really in bringing light to this. The aim, again, is to highlight the perpetuation of these COVID bureaucracies, which really seem to not do a whole lot that anybody thinks is of much value, uh, but nonetheless have found a rhythm whereby they're just able to kind of self-justify and press on. And, you know, that's sort of a feature of bureaucracies writ large. I mean, there's always a reason what that the bureaucracy can find to justify its own existence. Um, and that's really what these COVID bureaucracies seem to be doing. I mean, they're following the trajectory that you would expect of virtually any bureaucracy. Um, and so it got me thinking, and I wrote about this on a Substack post uh, that was published yesterday, but it got me thinking about this whole concept of bullshit jobs, right? And David Graeber is a, he was an anthropologist and kind of like a philosopher in a way, and he died, unfortunately, prematurely uh, last year. But one of his most well-known concepts that he coined in 2013 has to do with bullshit jobs. And if you haven't read the original essay where he kind of spells out this thesis, I would recommend it. Um, But basically, here's the rub, right? He says, quote, huge swaths of people in Europe and North America in particular spend their entire working lives performing tasks that secretly that they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar across the collective soul, yet virtually no one talks about it. And he goes on just to give one more quote. 
the, the creation of whole new industries like financial services or telemarketing or the unprecedented expansion of sectors like corporate law, academic and health administration, human resources and public relations, Graeber says, are emblematic of this trend of bullshit jobs proliferating. And bullshit jobs is more or less defined as people who recognize that their jobs do not need to be performed, right? Or people who are just taking a job and then kind of pretend like they're doing stuff for most or all of the day. And if you got them a couple drinks later that night would admit that the job is bullshit. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that Graeber kind of highlighted academic and health administration as one of these burgeoning sectors of bullshit jobs, because clearly COVID fits into that, right? Academic officials now are self-appointed COVID experts where they're opining on the propriety of student behavior. And even now, just with, with the Omicron flare up, you see this new wave of administrators decreeing that social gatherings must be barred and that in-person classes are no longer epidemiologically permissible, et cetera. And also, you know, health from the health administration standpoint, and that's essentially what these COVID officers on film sets are allegedly doing. I mean, they're protecting, quote, public health. And it's funny to me because one of the COVID credits that I saw on this Curb Enthusiasm episode uh, ended up replying to me. Uh, somebody, I guess, called her attention to my very offensive tweet, and she ended up uh, replying to me in you know, a sarcastic, ironically detached way that is typical of people in that, I guess, cultural subgroup. Um, and uh, I, I reached out to this person and asked, hey, I mean, in good faith, I'm actually doing a journalistic inquiry here. I asked, could you just explain to me what you do on a daily basis as a COVID logistics official? That was the title of this person, COVID logistics. So like, what does COVID logistics mean? Can you just spell it out? Like on a typical day on the Curb Enthusiasm set, like what are you doing in terms of running COVID logistics? And she wouldn't tell me. She said she wasn't interested because I was going to, you know, misrepresent her or which is going to use what she told me to further a narrative, which, you know, I wasn't going to do. I was trying to listen in, in good faith. I mean, maybe it would further my narrative. Maybe it wouldn't, but I wasn't going to prejudge. I actually wanted to hear what she had to say, uh, but she wouldn't do it. So bottom line is <laughs> after my correspondence with this individual, I was curious and I looked up what her background is. Like what in her background prepared her and I'm not going to name her on this call or on this show. I mean, if you want to read my Substack, it's I do give her name just for transparency. Um, but I looked into her background, and you know, she presents her bio publicly on her website and LinkedIn and such. And it turns out that uh, mere couple years ago, the main professional output of this person appeared to be producing YouTube videos with titles like the following, Final Showdown, Magic Battle Royale, Mute First the Challenge squab, Squad, Rap Battle, 24 Hours Trapped in a Magic Prison Escape Room, Locked Out of Magical Safe House, 
rescue mission. Sneaking into evil lair, magical obstacle course. Okay, so these are like, they seem to be, I mean, I could barely get through 20 seconds of one of these videos, but they seem to be like kids' videos that maybe she produced. Uh, it's hard to say, but the point is that this was the professional output of this person as of two years ago, and now she's been thrust into this role where she's running some kind of public health system on a major TV set. And in taking that position, she's afforded with this veneer of like scientific authority, right? And I don't want to pick on this person. I, I also don't even begrudge somebody in her position. If you want to be on a film set, if that's your career aspiration, of course you would take whatever job opportunity is available to you, even if it entails doing a bullshit COVID logistics job, right? Um, but it is instructive as to the types of people who populate these COVID bureaucracies, which we're all supposed to just stand back and in, in awe and honor their scientific authority. And that goes for film and TV sets and academic institutions and all manner of other institutions which have these fledgling COVID bureaucracies. Oftentimes when you drill down into the backgrounds of the people who actually run the bureaucracies, it's not, let's say, very impressive. Um, but because they now have this patina of authority, it seems that it's socially required to simply defer to them and to honor their little dictates. And I think that is misguided. And the reason that I think, or a big reason why we're now seeing an explosion of new kind of hysteria around Omicron, and I'm not saying that it's of no risk whatsoever, but I'm saying the reason why the hysteria has now been launched largely has to do with the existence of these COVID bureaucracies who are constantly searching for reasons to self-perpetuate, right? Just like every other bureaucracy. So they're constantly generating and collecting and then publicizing this data that's a very of dubious value such as you know, positive test results in people who are required or college students who are vaccinated and who are required to nonetheless submit to this constant asymptomatic testing regime where they would have no idea otherwise that there was anything out of the ordinary except for their entanglement with this bureaucracy where suddenly if you quote test positive, even if you have no symptoms at all, you know, that's a giant public health emergency and you need to rush into swift kind of remedial action. Um, so I guess my kind of working thesis at this point, and it's bolstered by my light investigation into COVID bureaucracies on TV and film sets, is that the bureaucracies themselves at this point are the main source of paranoia, the main source of anxiety in the public vis-a-vis -vis COVID, more so than the disease itself in many, many circumstances. Because if you just scan social media right now, do a search, you'll see person after person after person, anxiety-ridden, reporting that they tested positive because they were required to by their college or for whatever other reason. And what are they more afraid of? 
they're afraid of the ramifications of testing positive in terms of the bureaucracy that they're enmeshed in, far more so than the disease itself. As we know, the disease itself, especially for young people and that uh, young vaccinated people is extremely likely to be either mild or non-observable. So if we've gotten to a point in our disease detection regimen where people are constantly far more disturbed by the prospect of merely, quote, testing positive than of actually contracting a disease, something has gone haywire. And I think that really is in large part owed to the proliferation and perpetuation of these uh, COVID bureaucracies, which I hope I've established are not always populated by the most credible seeming individuals. Um, all right, so that's my uh, basic position, I guess, on the COVID bureaucracies. And I have gotten even additional people contacting me about uh, ridiculous anecdotes from their own TV and film sets, like somebody who's in the process of producing or you know, working on a Disney Plus offering is saying that the people hired to run to do these COVID jobs are basically had no experience at all at anything remotely like public health. They basically just know somebody who's in a position of power on the film set and can get a job. I mean, it's like nepotistic, as you would expect with any bureaucracy that doesn't need to really provide a rational explanation for anything it does. It's just assumed that it must exist and therefore it has all these ridiculous and arbitrary kind of expressions of its authority on this uh, extra anecdote that I've now gotten after my uh, article was published yesterday on additional COVID bureaucracy in the film and TV industry, because it's just hilarious. This person says, and of course I go, I verified that this person says is who he said he was, you know, so Disney plus production, something that you would probably know if you're into that stuff says, about 35 people are inside the COVID safety department. All of those people were either friends or family members of people on the show or failed production assistants that no assistant directors wanted to hire anymore. None of them knew anything about health and safety or COVID. Right. So, and that tells you all you need to know, right? I mean, so if, if the supposed urgency of why these jobs are needed is that there's a public health emergency underway and we need staff with the requisite skills to know how to contain that emergency or mitigate it, and it, the people that are, end up being hired are just whoever happens to know some, like a producer or something, then I think the reasonable inference from that is that we've entered into bullshit jobs territory, right? We've entered into territory where people are just giving out jobs because it's a job and people want a job. And they also like being proximate to the film and TV industry, which again, on an individual level, I'm, I don't blame anybody for seizing upon that opportunity. I might do it if I were in their position, but structurally it really shows the absurdity of the situation, just like the, the absurdity of an individual who's listed as this fancy schmancy COVID logistics officer on Curb Your Enthusiasm, having been previously 
a YouTube rap battle actor. I mean, please. This is the person we're supposed to herald as, you know, fighting the virus. And I don't even want to say that any of these people have ill intent. I'm sure they don't. Um, but, you know, I think it is worthwhile from just the perspective of being a conscientious citizen to note when you have these burgeoning industries of bullshit jobs, because bullshit jobs are kind of like extractive and they seem to be also psychologically harmful in that if a person doing a bullshit job and who understands themselves to be doing a bullshit job, nonetheless finds themselves in a position where they're just constantly doing a bullshit job, that kind of saps your will in a way. And that's not unique to the COVID bureaucracy, but if COVID bureaucracy is one of the few growth industries in the U.S. right now, then, you know, that's something worth bearing in mind. And also, the existence of these bureaucracies clearly has some influence on wider public policy. Now, I'm not saying that the corporate enthusiasm, you know, uh, COVID staff are creating government regulations or anything. But clearly, public uh, policy decrees are being issued left and right in terms of proper behavioral regulation uh, vis-a-vis COVID. And with more and more of these bureaucracies in existence, they're kind of the constituency almost for such decrees. And often what you'll see is that they claim, meaning, you know, especially to the college bureaucracies, they claim that they're acting in concert with the actual government public health authorities. So if this is how these bureaucracies are kind of transmitting the guidances issued by public authorities and kind of translating that into actual rules, then that does have enough of a wider societal effect that it's worth scrutinizing from the from the standpoint of it affecting the behavior and lives of others, um, right? So it's not merely a matter of them having bullshit jobs. It's a matter of how the proliferation of these bullshit jobs is affecting the way society is governed. Um, all right, so Kevin, I'm gonna try you again. Let's see if we can get you on the stage this time. All right, Michael, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Hey, Great. how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. First of all, um, it's probably sound a little hokey, but I do want to like genuinely thank you for talking about this because um, a lot of people in the media, uh, in similar circles that you run in or are associated with you, are starting to kind of speak up about a lot of this insanity. Um, some are a little more mild than others, but uh, you know we're almost two years in this now. I, I think we need to start recognizing that a lot of this just doesn't add it up. Um, I'm in Cleveland. Let me give you an example right now. Today's Saturday. We were supposed to have, or for me at least, three games I was really excited about. The Cleveland Browns were supposed to play the Las Vegas Raiders. That's been moved to Monday, maybe, because so many guys are testing positive for this from the rapid test. Mind you, all of the players who have tested positive are vaccinated. The vast, vast majority are actually asymptomatic or mild. A linebacker said today that he, quote, had nasal congestion, slight nasal congestion. And he was kind of laughing about the idea that he would miss a game prior to this. Um, That game's been moved. Uh, The college I graduated from, 
we were supposed to play Duke. I mean, this is Cleveland State University playing Duke. This is like a huge thing for us. That's been canceled because some guys tested positive. The Cavs, two of their players, two star players, young guys, 20 years old, vaccinated. So statistically speaking, these people are not high risk whatsoever. They are now in COVID-19 health protocols too. So my question is this, why are we even testing? Because we have a safe, effective vaccine. According to our public health officials, we, we've had a vaccine now for almost a year. Anyone can get one. Anyone can get a booster shot now. So if you're, if you're vaccinated, especially, again, if you're young, you shouldn't end up with a severe illness or, hospital, or in the hospital, correct? So if that's the case, why are we testing for a virus now that is, with its mutations, by the way, not to get too into epidemiology, but it's becoming less and less potent, less deadly, especially this Omicron, which should be celebrated in some ways. But I just don't understand why we even test it. Because the whole idea of testing, and it was emergencies because there was no vaccine. This was a novel coronavirus. Now we have two years of data on it. We have vaccine for almost a year now. I just help me understand why, why are we even doing any testing at all? Well, I mean, I think what you're saying there is totally rational. Uh, I think the question as well as to why this testing is so ubiquitous is also very rational. I've been asking this question now for quite some time. And when I was asking it in relation to college campuses, particularly at the beginning of the semester, right, when the administrators of these colleges were hyper paranoid and they were demanding just such excessive testing regimen on the part of the students to the point that many of them at some of these colleges had to test twice a week. And this applied to asymptomatic and symptomatic, right? It didn't matter. And, and, and the, the point was that they needed to constantly be collecting right. all this information. They, the, or in other words, the bureaucracy that had been uh, instated at these institutions claimed that in order to safeguard the health and wellness of the community or whatever cliche they're using, they need to be constantly be uh, funneled with this data derived from the test results. And the question that I would put is, okay, so what value is it for a vaccinated 20-year-old on a college campus to be submitting to constant testing when the testing itself is more of a hindrance in their lives than it would be to contract the virus? I mean, supposedly that right. should have been celebrated because that means either vaccination would work, was working and it was mitigating disease as hoped, or that they were never susceptible to the disease at all. It's probably some combination of the two. And yet, and, and yet, I agree. these bureaucracies operate is that they were never able to recalibrate. They were still operating under the same paradigm as March of 2020, right? Where the, they have these dashboards yep. that are always blinking and always updating and being refreshed like minute by minute to track the number of positive cases. And the, at a certain point, I would think if you're running one of these institutions, you should stop and say to yourself, okay, maybe we need to kind of reexamine our premises here from first principles, but they can't do that because there's too much inertia behind these bureaucracies. Right. And also there's too much uh, funding on the line in these bureaucracies. I don't know if people are aware of this, but FEMA Federal Emergency Management Authority underwrites a lot of these protocols now, particularly at public colleges and universities. And, you know, uh, private colleges can also apply for different grants and such. So 
you know, there's a money spigot here. Um, and guess what? Sure. These tests don't just drop out of the sky. They are produced by for-profit firms uh, that have enjoyed a huge kind of boon times in uh, providing these services. So I'm not saying every individual college administrator, everybody working on an NFL team or whatever is personally cynically motivated by just kind of profit incentive, right? But you got to think of the wider structure here. And the structure, I think, is incentivizing just mindless perpetuation of bureaucratic protocols um, uh, because people can't can't reset and reevaluate. Yeah. Um, well, and this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to say, but this stuff also has real damaging consequences. This idea that there's no collateral damage with this constant testing with, you know, and you made a good point too. I know people right now who they're terrified, not of the virus, because I'm 32, you know, people I hang out with, my family, friends, we're all, you know, are a similar age. We're not that concerned. I, by the way, I was vaccinated, in, not that this really matters, but I was vaccinated in April and got Delta variant in September, recovered, I'm okay. Uh, wasn't fun, but the worst part was the quarantine. It just, it was, it, it was maddening to be, I feel like the guy from Parasite who's trapped in the basement because that's what, that, my, that was my life. I was for 10 days just in a basement. So I think there are people right now who are terrified. They have no symptoms whatsoever. They're feeling fine. But if they take a rapid test, it is possible that you can find, you know, yeah, you have a trace of the coronavirus. And so then they have to not see their family for Christmas or just be quarantined, locked away for 14 days. That has real harm. And, you know, I'm just wondering, Michael, what is the reason why more people, because you're in agreement. I think most people deep down, if you talk to them, and it sounds like you're getting a lot of private messages, people going, yeah, you're right, man. I, you know, I, I can see it. I, is the reason why people are not being more public about it, just this culture of fear and this, this pejorative of, quote, anti-science or anti-vaccine, even though the irony in all this is that what's happening right now is really anti-scientific in many ways. But do you just attribute it to that, that people are just scared like, we don't want to be called this. We don't want this label, especially people in the media who their whole livelihood, no offense, or it seems like a lot of these people just, you know, their Twitter reputation or social media presence is everything. So they don't want to be badgered or burdened with this type of stuff. So I, I don't know, Michael, what, what do you attribute a lot of people just not speaking up or saying anything at this point to? Yeah, well, I mean, on the point of the quarantine being the worst part of you contracting COVID, I mean, I've heard that constantly from people, just even in my own private life, where, you know, you might feel a little sick and maybe you're even willing to isolate as you would for any any illness prior to COVID. Like if you're sick, you know, stay home and rest for a couple of days, no big deal. You know, maybe there are some issues around work that you have to sort out. But you know, for the most part, the principle is you're home, you're sick, you don't want to spread a disease, whatever. But clearly, the worst part for them are the potential ramifications of testing positive, then potentially even that alerting authorities. And that can be a problem, especially if you're transiting international borders. Um, I mean, I have huge sympathy for people who live on the Canadian-American border um, who have already been blocked off from one another for a year and a half. Then the restrictions were just lifted in part in uh, November, and um, now they're resuming. And you know, if you're a, and, and one of the things that you have to do once more is to get involved in this whole endless testing protocol. And if you're asymptomatic and test positive, well, guess what? No border crossing for you. 
for 10 days, you know, doesn't matter if it's in the holidays or whenever. It's really disrupting families. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's huge collateral damage. And if, if we're at a point now where there's more psychic damage being done by the test result itself than, than the disease, somebody in a position of authority has got to think to themselves, okay, well, right. we have to step back, again, step back, reexamine first principles, but they're incapable of doing it. And they're incapable of doing it, I think, in part because what you alluded to in terms of the media and other kind of sectors of society that I think are kind of dominated by people who at least ostensibly and publicly have kind of crafted identities around being hyper COVID cautious, right? It's almost, it's almost morphed into a sort of a ideology unto itself, right? So people who are more skeptical, and I think more and more people are going to be a little bit skeptical now, um, but they should, but right. You have to, yeah, but, um, but even now, I think in the media in particular, you face the risk of being looked askance at by your colleagues as the person who's like not into COVID safety, right? Or maybe you're even endangering others by your reckless attitude, right? Um, maybe expressing any kind of skepticism about the kind of prevailing narrative around this stuff puts you in league with dangerous right-wingers or insurrectionists or conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers. I mean, it's amazing to me how much the concept of anti-vax has been expanded to encompass anybody who has any reservations at all about any of the systems of like control or coercion that have sprouted up in the name of COVID mitigation, but really have nothing inherently to do with one's attitude toward the vaccine the vaccine or vaccination like you said you've been vaccinated i personally been vaccinated but well, the irony too times i've been smeared as anti-vax because i have questions on you know civil liberties issues associated with passports or mandates or whatever so that th- that all adds up to a very perverse incentive structure where even if people in the media privately have these skeptical intuitions they're they're strongly inhibited from doing so because it could result in censure. Now, maybe the not censorship, I mean, censure from people in their peer group, right? Or people who they rely on for employment or social validation. So maybe the tide is turning somewhat now with Omicron uh, and the transmissibility of it supposedly being off the chart. So even if you were hyper cautious for a year and a half and never left home, there's a very good chance you're going to contract it. And that could maybe change the way that people are thinking about it. Um, but to whatever extent it does change, clearly it's been the case for a very long time that evincing any kind of deviation from the kind of standard orthodoxies and, uh, on this stuff is really a problem for you if you're hoping to inhabit worlds of, of media or the nonprofit sector or like the entertainment industry, for example. So, yeah, it's just a, it's a coalescence of really stifling uh, incentives that I think lead to this. And I'm, I'm in a unique position, right? So where I'm, you know, I write for major publications here and there, but mostly what I do is uh, independent and therefore I'm not constrained by the same incentives. And that, that dynamic kind of replicates across a whole variety of different subjects that I uh, cover with this being, this being one of them. Yeah. It's just, you know, we were told, that, you know, you get your lives back. And I, I think, you know, across the board, what everyone wants, I would think at this point, or most rational people, they just want to return to normalcy. Um, you know, the idea that you can just hug your neighbor, or not your neighbor, but you hug your grandma without 
we worry about killing her or going to a grocery store and act like you're not in a war zone. Um, people just want that. We were told that, hey, you get the jab, take the shot, you will get back to normal. In fact, you know, you remember President Biden going, oh, you can take your mask off. It's, it's simple. Take your mask off if you're vaccinated. And, and, and that's all. Everyone was, you know, the summertime and this happened. We were all feeling, OK, this is a return to normalcy. And, and here we are, you know, in December, like you said, yes, the cases are going to go up now. But I, I think that we really need to stop thinking about the quote unquote stop the spread. Maybe that that was the original sin, too, because, look, you can't really stop. A, we have to be honest here. You can't really stop a coronavirus from spreading. You know, you can lock down, you can wear cloth masks, you can do all these procedures. But as we're seeing time and time again, look at the data across the world. There's not this correlation with countries that go into strict lockdowns or have strict mask mandates and seeing a huge decrease in in cases. It's just not, you know, the the emphasis should not be necessary in stopping the spread as much as, hey, do your best to uh, build up your immunity, be healthy. We know that people who are obese are more likely, much more likely to end up in the hospital with COVID than people who are healthy. You know, we're all going to get this virus at some point. That's just the reality, whether you're vaccinated or not. But taking a vaccine, that will, that will give you some immunity too. That should be the, the, the focus. Instead, this idea that you can stop the spread and with Omicron specifically now, Michael, I'm like, I'm shuddering the idea of, you know, Biden's going to give some address on Tuesday. Who knows what that's about? But we cannot return to March 2020. We, we, we can't do this. It's not a sustainable way to live. That's not how society can run, where we all just run through the hills and hide in our house because a variant that's less deadly. And look at the look at the data in South Africa. If people are serious about science, if they're serious about data, then you need to start actually reading the statistics and following what's happening. In South Africa, hospitalizations, which we were told at the beginning of all this, Lockdown because we cannot overrun the hospital system. Look at what's happening right now in South Africa. Their hospitalizations are way down. So if that's the case, Omicron in some ways should kind of be looked at as celebrated. I don't want to use that term because, look, I understand, you know, it's health. But if this is going to be what we're seeing right now, a cold, the equivalent of like a mild cold, then, yeah, it's time to really move on. Because, again, and like you said, though, there's bureaucracy. Too many people invested in all this, you know. I, I don't know. It, it's just frustrating. And I, I, I'll let you go. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of speak on this slash rant, but um, please keep doing what you're doing because we need smart, skeptical people like yourself to, to stay on this because otherwise, if we're just going to bow our heads and just submit to panic every single time, then th- it's never going to end. Yeah. And I think it's also sort of in a way offensive because a lot of people at the very beginning, myself included, I would say, we're at least temporarily willing to accede to a number of measures that maybe we couldn't justify as being totally efficacious, right? But because it was was seemingly this emergency situation, we were looking at the footage of the hospital wards in Northern Italy. Uh, We were hearing anecdotally about hospital admissions genuinely increasing, you know, particularly in the New York, New Jersey area, which is where I am. You know, we were willing to say, look, okay, so maybe I can't have the full information at my disposal and know with certainty that staying at home for a couple of weeks is the best course of action. But I'm willing to do it as a matter of like societal solidarity or acknowledgement that these are extremely unprecedented circumstances and something ought to be done. So that I think. The impulse from which that kind of mindset arose 
is a laudable one. I mean, if there is a genuine, genuine societal emergency and you can do something which can, at, around the margins, mitigate the harm that your fellow man or woman is going to uh, incur, then generally speaking, you should, I think, probably do it. But now that whole mentality has been perverted and morphed into a range of different measures that had nothing to do with the initial impetus, right? So, you know, vaccine passports and a constant you know, medicalization of so many different aspects of society were just to engage in basic activity and go to venues and stuff. You need to be not just getting the two vaccines that they said constituted full vaccination earlier this year, but now three and four and five, you know, right? So what's the end point in this? I don't think there is any. And bureaucracies don't have an end point, right? Bureaucracies, as I've now maybe repeated too many times, bureaucracies always find a reason to self-perpetuate. And even if more and more people are saying, look, a cold is not a health emergency, if their data is getting, if the data which records them having a cold is then funneled into these systems where they get added to the tally of quote positive cases and positive cases gets funneled into all these charts and all these graphics that get blasted across social media and on TV and so forth. We're kind of in a system now that no, no one individual can really control. So I think the only option here is to, you know, is for more and more people to just demand at least some adherence to rationality. Um, But like I mentioned earlier, there is the problem, the recurring problem of social incentives militating against it for lots of people. And I think that's most pervasive within left liberal circles, right? Because you're going to be called right wing or you're going to be called an insurrectionist or secretly pro-Trump or something. And for a lot of people, that's really just not worth the headache. Uh, So they'll kind of go along mindlessly with whatever the new protocol is. And, you know, if I need to wear a mask in an airport, that's not the end of the world, right? I mean, I don't maybe think that it's the most useful intervention, epidemiologically or otherwise, but, you know, it's not a huge infringement on my liberty as such. But that's not the point anymore. The point is this system of constant emergency where decrees can just be unilaterally issued from on high about proper behavior and where the prior assurances about how, what would enable a return to normalcy, meaning vaccination, just get disregarded at a moment's notice. And now you have institutions that, I'm sorry, are very influential, at least within sectors of society like you know MIT and Carnegie Mellon I saw earlier and NYU, Columbia, et cetera, now they're mandating boosters merely to return to campus for a lot of, for for anybody uh, next semester. That's not normalcy. I mean, normalcy is you got this vaccine and you're done, right? Now normalcy is, oh, we'll update you every couple months about what vaccines you need to get in order to be in compliance with our now permanent protocols. That's not normalcy, that's something else. And that I think is worth objecting to, or at least being skeptical of. Um, and you're not gonna get it from a lot of the 
media, even even this, even yesterday, you read the New York Times, and it does look like they're returning to March 2020 because they take cues from the public health experts. And there was one public health expert I saw at Harvard who was saying, "Okay, I'm now leaving my office just like I did in March of 2020, and I don't don't know when I'll be back." So he's basically likening Omicron in December 2021 to the initial wave in March 2020, and instituting behavioral interventions for himself that are the same. And, you know, I think that's really dangerous. And anybody who has a fidelity to civil liberties should find that dangerous. I mean, I could almost see someone complaining, you know, based on what Kevin said. Oh, I mean, it's so trivial that you're worried about the Browns football game this weekend, right? Or you're worried about some other sports event, which, you know, can be postponed or whatever. I mean, that's not the end of the world. And maybe it's not. The the point, though, is not so much about the football itself. It's about this cyclical emergency posture that so much of society is told it must be mired in. Without anybody providing a coherent rationale, really, or a coherent forecast as to when this will stop happening. Um, And... You know, the, the continued problem, I think, is that for people who believe themselves to be right-minded liberals or leftists or even centrist, whatever, anything other than like hardcore right-wing conspiracy nuts, anybody who thinks of themselves in those terms and are employed in an industry where most people think of themselves in those terms or, or in a social milieu where most people think of themselves in those terms, they are taking a risk by deviating from whatever the kind of the current week's public health pronouncements are. Um, they're jeopardizing their potentially livelihood or their social standing. And, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to do that. Um, thankfully, at least for my purposes, I have the ability to do that in a way to the duty to do that because that's what people expect of me from, you know, a quasi-professional standpoint. So I'll, I will continue to do that. And I'm glad that I can give sort of an outlet to people who otherwise feel like their viewpoint is being stifled. Um, all right, people. Well, uh, thanks for uh, tuning into this episode, and uh, we'll do it again very soon. So, take care.